Welcome to Camp Podcast Piano Talk. I am pianist Migo, and I serve as president of the Contemporary Art Music Project, or CAMP. Uh, 
CAMP is an organization that promotes innovative art music and collaborates with composers and performing artists. One of many activities we do is our podcast series. Our hosts explore a wide range of topics from marginalized composers in the music history to current collaborations. Piano Talk brings you new piano repertoires and composers who wrote them. Tonight, I am your host. I am delighted to have guest composer Jared Redmond. Um, what you just heard in the beginning is DOS, by, composed by and performed by Jared Redmond. And it's great to have Jared right here. Hi, Jared. Hey, thanks so much for inviting me. It's nice to be here. Yeah, you were speaking from Korea, correct? Yeah, exactly. I'm at home here in Seoul. Yeah, it's uh, it's great. I don't think we had anyone, at least in my show, from, from Seoul. Um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the wonders of modern technology. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's really great to have you here because... Um, um, I think you are kind of a rare case uh, uh, who does um, uh, both composition and and performance uh, professionally. And there, of course, you know there are people like Robert Halps and Jevsky that you know perform um, in public, but it's still rare, right? Right? It's not you don't see it that often. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there are some cases of a few, a few big names these days who are known to be, you know, capable mm -hmm. um, performers. I think, for example, of Thomas Addis. Oh, who, of that's course, right. Is a right. Super, you know, a super major composer played by everyone, right. and he's also, you know, a concertizing pianist. Right. Although, although I think it's clear that he uh, is mostly first and foremost known as a as a composer mm -hmm. you know obviously as you know and probably most of your listeners know um in the history of you know western art music if you will um many of the major compose i mean the vast majority of um famous composers at least since you know the baroque era were very capable pianists, uh, keyboardists, to sometimes really like legendary keyboardists, with a few exceptions, right? Like Berlioz was a guitar player, I think, and and so on. But in general, they tend to be very capable keyboard players. But again, as as you and everyone knows, um, in the age of modern music, whatever you take that to be, um, most of the really um, really innovative and kind of, you know, the kind of composers that you would study in a music history class who really kind of uh, did a lot of original and inventive and unique things. A lot of them were not, you know, I'm talking about really after World War One, World War Two, especially. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them were not primarily, you know, concert level mm -hmm. performers. Mm -hmm. um, and from a certain standpoint, I think a lot of people could consider that uh, a strength because uh, composers who are very, very attached to the keyboard often tend to think very much in terms of the keyboard when they write music. And 
So if you're looking for that kind of music, of course, it's a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. But if people are looking for a kind of music that's a bit, you know, more, you know, kind of from outer space, so to speak, <laughs> something that's really innovative, that's not tied so clearly to music of the past, then, um, you know, a lot of times people consider it really a, a, a strong suit if a composer is kind of free from the habits of, of the keyboard. So in my case, it's been very complicated. I've had to go through <laughs> many, 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 many years of second guessing myself and trying to kind of soul search and figure out um, who I was or who I am or who I will be as a composer. Mm -hmm. because for me, the issue of being a pianist was always the first issue. Like, you know, as early as I can remember when I seriously started to study composition academically when I was an undergraduate, um, up until very, very recently, to be honest, I kind of mm. really considered myself first and foremost a pianist rather than a composer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just funny the way life turns out because you know, the the job that mainly uh, puts food on the table is uh, that I work and teach uh, in a composition department at a university. And so I'm employed as a composer. Mm -hmm. I, I write music. Mm -hmm. I'm sometimes if I'm lucky, I'm invited to to present my work in places and to write for other mm -hmm. ensembles and so on. And then a lot of my activities as a pianist, in fact, the vast majority of my activities as a pianist until very recently, so let's say for the past, you know, roughly 15 years of having some kind of professional career um, mm -hmm. has really been as a pianist playing other people's music. So for me, it was always kind of divided neatly down the middle. Like when I was a pianist, I was being a pianist playing 99% other people's music and thinking mm -hmm. really as a pianist as if as if I never knew how to write a note of music. And then when I was working as a composer, it was sort of like another me. And so I think the piece that you just played this excerpt of mm -hmm. is called, as you, as you said, Doth, which is quite new. It's only from 2019 or so. Um, that piece is really the first piece of a kind of mature, if I can call my compositional style now, <laughs> ma mature in some way. That's really the first piece where these two worlds intersect and where I kind of, as I was writing the piece, I thought, you know, let's finally not shy away from being mm -hmm. a you know hyphenated word composer pianist like a lot of the old mm -hmm. masters you know let's uh mm -hmm. let me kind of pursue um my identity as a pianist but also my identity as a composer in the same creative activity and that's how that piece uh came to came to be great yeah um <laughs> I I mean I always thought it's a beautiful piece and it's as you said yes there's of course we have this rich history of um uh composer who also was uh, a professional pianist of course there was Rachmaninoff and Chopin and, right yeah um Definitely. so yes I and mean you, well, why, you've why played not? the piece and you've played the I piece did. yourself so <laughs> so which I'm I'm very happy you did and so you know that um you know, even though the the sound of the music is certainly in some ways very far from, let's say, Rachmaninoff. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I I think I don't say it's good or bad or or better or worse or anything, but certainly playing that piece, and I think with repeated listening to the piece, anybody can sense that that piece does have some kind of foot 
in the keyboard music of the past. It's not totally like, you know, it's not (laughs) like if you learn a piece by a, even a, even a legendary kind of avant-garde composer like Xenakis, who I I respect very much, where you get the feeling that in some sense, the music wasn't written for humans. It's just completely coming from another world. And, (laughs) and if you like it that, you know, and if you like it, then that's why you like it. Actually, that's its strong suit. Um, but as a pianist, you know, who enjoys playing old music as well as new music, myself and yourself included, I think um, it's satisfying to be able to play, I hope, to be able mm-hmm. to play a piece like that, which it doesn't feel super nostalgic for music of the past. It's not written in a kind of post-romantic uh, style necessarily, but mm-hmm. at the same time, the piece feels that uh, while it is wearing some kind of um, influence of modernism, you know, post-war 20th century modernism on its sleeve. It's all, it also fits in the hand very well and you get to explore Mm -hmm. all the range of touch and expression and phrasing and pedaling that you do when you play Chopin and Rachmaninoff, even though the harmony is a bit more freaky, you know? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I remember that, uh, you know, your kind of inspiration from screaming and uh, uh, I still remember how you explain uh, how this composition came by from that and you actually took some notes from Scriabin's work and yes. um, and I know that Scriabin is one of your favorite composer um, so maybe uh, we can listen to your playing of uh, again it's excerpts but um, sure. Scriabin uh, opus 74 right yeah so and this is the final the final you know the pianists listening will know this if they like mm-hmm. you know early 20th century <laughs> music Scriabin's opus 74 was a set of five preludes the, they were the last finished pieces that he wrote before he died rather young at the age of 42 43 and um There's five short preludes, and uh, the ones that you're going to play, I think, are the first three of the set. Uh, They come from a concert that I played back in, I think, 2017 or so. Yeah. Um, And maybe we can continue listening to Michael Finnish's Scriab in in itself, uh, which I heard in life when I was in Seoul um, (laughs) when you performed that piece. Yeah, that's a piece that I also like very much. Yeah, definitely. We can maybe talk about it after people take a listen. Yes. Yeah. So let's listen to Scriabin Opus 74, uh, number one to three. Uh, These are excerpts, and Michael finishes Scriabin in itself, um, also excerpt.
Okay, it was Scriabin Opus 74, um, number one through three excerpts. Um, Michael Finesse's Scriabin in itself, also excerpts. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Scriabin, as you mentioned, Scriabin is a, a composer very, very close to my heart. In fact, when I, when I did my doctoral studies, again, as a, as a composer, I did, um, uh, I studied at a school where they have this very old, and I, I, I quite liked it, actually. They have this old school, kind of very academic composition slash theory doctoral degree. And so it's one of the schools in the United States where if you do a doctorate in composition, they also want you to write uh, a scholarly um, doctoral thesis project. And so mm -hmm. the subject of my um uh, doctoral thesis was precisely uh, the music of Scriabin, which I'd loved since I was uh, a student. I mean, a young student. Uh, I just got more into it and more into it as I got older. Uh, Michael Finnessy, as you know, because just about a week ago, a week and a half ago, I was visiting Florida <laughs> and you and I played two, two crazy concerts with really right. crazy rep contemporary <laughs> repertoire, one of which was a piece for two pianos by the same composer, Michael Finnessy, which is called Wildflowers from the mid-70s. That's a really tough but really beautiful piece. Um, if some of your listeners don't know and they're interested in that, uh, Michael Finnessy is a living a uh, very respected composer with a long career behind him. He's an excellent pianist himself. I believe he worked as a repetiteur for modern dance for many years. So he's just an insane sight reader. And uh, he's written literally hundreds of piano pieces. In fact, if I have to think about, I was talking about this with a colleague of mine recently. If I have to think about, again, this category of the kind of pianist composer, this old historical category. Mm-hmm. I think in the modern day, um, as we mentioned, there are very few of these pianist composers in the kind of really kind of hardcore kind of world of avant, you know, contemporary music that comes out of the avant-garde. Mm -hmm. um, in music that's more kind of friendly and easy to listen to, kind of lyric mm -hmm. music, there are many, you know, uh, composer pianists out there, some of whom are very good. Um, but in the realm of like really intense kind of like, you know, innovative avant-garde contemporary music, I think Michael Finnessy is pretty much the only one or at least the only one of mm -hmm. that um, um, reputation. Maybe you could say that Zhevsky was one until he, you know, passed away recently. Right. Um, but Finnessy's music is, you know, tremendously hard to play. If anybody's ever seen the scores, they've, you know, they're just <laughs> notes everywhere and... Um, I, but, you know, the more I get into it and the, I've played now two big pieces of his and uh, which leaves hundreds more if I ever want to study more in the future. Mm -hmm. um, it's nice because you get the same or a similar sense of satisfaction playing a piece like that, that you do from playing, let's say, Transcendental Etudes by Liszt. You mm -hmm. know, it's tremendously hard. But mm -hmm. the more effort you put into it, the more colors and range of expression come out of the piano. And in some sense, it is written very, very well for the piano. Mm -hmm. This particular piece, Scriabin in itself, which is sort of recent, it's from the 2000s, um, is uh, very representative of his kind of recent music where he actually does use a lot of 
a quotation. He uses transcription techniques. He has, for example, kind of crazy reimaginings of Gershwin and Verdi music for the piano. Mm -hmm. He does all this kind of stuff, uh, transcribing folk songs. Some of it sounds like folk song and some of it sounds just like complete chaos, but somehow the folk song is buried inside the music in some way. So I like this piece, Scriabin in itself, because it shows Finnessy at a bit more kind of meditational atmosphere. Um, there's even a quotation of a Scriabin G-sharp mm -hmm. minor prelude that kind of fades out of the music and then fades back into it. And um, It's a really, really uh, interesting piece, which I like a lot. I hope to play more in the future. Yeah, I I remember uh, from the live performance that it, the, really I talked about this. It feels like it's <laughs> kind of you you know go in and out of dream. Yeah, right? exactly. It's like very, um, uh, yeah. Well, um, one thing that I found um, when I, I played with you uh, and rehearsed, although we had such. Um, um, small amount of rehearsals <laughs> in a, such short uh, preparation time, but yeah. um, it's really, really free kind of uh, uh, playing that you know you you have you took uh, you take a lot of time and give a lot of time. Uh, there's this a uh, lot of rubato in your playing. Also, you know how we. Uh, both of us love, you know, this old generation of pianists, right? Yes, and ab absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you know, I always find they, how they start phrase at the finish phrase. That's really, uh, uh, um, really beautiful. And also same time, that's very clear when, when you hear them playing. And I always thought, you know, your playing is, like that it's you know you you can really understand the message and also very free well thank you i, I mean that's the best compliment i could get i i mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, i really i always joke in fact i joked with your students when i when i did this master class um mm -hmm. if you remember i i said the deader the better you know right. <laughs> and, and I, that, obviously that's not to say that there aren't tons of really awesome pianists playing nowadays of course there are but it is true that, to me, this is, of course, my opinion, that the generation in which we live now, uh, and, in, and increasingly so, so dominated by technology and dominated by a kind of fetish for technical perfection and repeatability and, um, you know, big warehouse manufacturing and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff, sort of assembly line music and assembly line musical education. Um, I'm very lucky. It's a very long story, but I'm very lucky that when I was young, I had a great mentor, a teacher who um, did not come from that world. And I also, in some sense, did not come from that world. And so I, I think I was able to come at music with a certain kind of old school, um, approach to creativity and a certain kind of freedom, which um, is not so common anymore. Um, I mean, most musicians nowadays, um, you know, think that they're very, very free. And to some degree, they may be. But if you compare the freedom of the average pianist nowadays playing Chopin with the way that 
let's say Frederick Lamont played Chopin in 1910, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's not even comparable. I mean, it's not even comparable. And God knows how it would have been if we could have heard Chopin play. I mean, my guess right. is that many people working now would have said, oh, my God, this guy can't play because the way that right. they played back then, <laughs> you know, they were concerned with very, very different things than people are right. concerned with with now when they when they play piano, for example. Um so yeah, if anybody hears in my playing something that harkens back to the old guard of, of you know, <laughs> let's say early 20th century or turn of the 20th century musicians who were not yet, um, they were not yet constricted by the psychology of making recordings or, you know, this kind of thing, um, then I'm really, then I'm really happy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, uh, speaking of um, older music and playing, romantic playing, um, we can listen to uh, your performance um, excerpts um, of uh, Schumann. Uh, Yes, let me me tell you something about this piece. Do you know this piece, actually? Many people don't don't really know it. Actually, I don't know. Right. So this piece is called uh, Gesänge der Frühe. You'll have to forgive my my bad German pronunciation. (laughs) But it basically, it means the songs of dawn. And the songs of dawn, the Gesänge der Frühe, are... um, it, people often say it's sort of like Schumann's second to last piano piece. Um, I, with no musicological um, justification for this opinion whatsoever, I actually kind of think it is just his last piano piece. So most people know that at the end of his life, he, you know, he was suffering from syphilis and he had terrible right. kind of mental issues. And so for the last two years of his life, he was in an institution and couldn't work. Um, so this is one of the very final pieces he wrote before he entered, um, mm. institutional care basically. Yeah. And, um, he wrote them, uh, basically, uh, uh, they were given to Clara Schumann and she said something funny, uh, in her diary. I don't remember exactly, but something like, as usual, the music is very, uh, unique and very difficult to understand. And I think these are very, this is Schumann the philosopher, you know, this is very late Schumann. In some way, it kind of harkens back to old music. There's a lot of medieval sounding stuff, mm-hmm. a lot of counterpoint. And in another sense, it's so colorfully, harmonically romantic and and free that it almost sounds like a really late romantic, almost Malerian music. Mm -hmm. Um, So this excerpt that um, you're going to play now is the fifth short piece of out of five pieces, because there are five pieces in the set. So this is the final piece, which ends the set of Schumann's Gesänge der Führer.
Okay, it was Schumann's Gesange der uh, Frühe. It's a I, my German is even worse than yeah, <laughs> yeah close enough. It's the songs, songs of dawn. Songs of dawn. Um, yes. Opus one thirty three, number five, uh, performed here um, by uh, Jared Redmond. Um, uh, it's yeah. Well, I want to play it. <laughs> oh, it's really, so right? it's so beautiful. It's really yeah. really beautiful. The only piano piece that Schumann wrote after that is a piece which is called the Geistervariation and the Ghost Variations, and those are sometimes played as well. Very a bit rarely, but they're played, and I like them. But again, with no musicological backing whatsoever. I always get the feeling that the ghost variations are sort of unfinished. Like if he had had more mm. time to think mm. about it, if he had had better a better state of mind at the time, maybe he would have added more or changed them more or something. So, you know, I don't really know if that's true, but to me they seem a bit green, whereas the these Songs of Dawn feel to me just like a really, I mean, mm. some of the best Schumann piano that he ever wrote. And he, as you know, he wrote a lot of good piano a music. A lot, yes. Like yes. really a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, well, uh, so I always ask this uh, question to all my guests because I believe that our podcast series has this um, educational aspect uh, to younger generation of pianists and composers and uh, any musicians who listen to this show. So... Um, uh, do you have any advice for uh, pianists who are um, studying currently uh, in the school and uh, thinking of uh, taking this path as a, a professional musician and performer? It's a hard question to answer, but I'm reminded of when I was a younger pianist and I met the famous pianist Marc-Andre Hamelin. And uh, I always had admired the fact that he was very dedicated, still is very dedicated to playing lesser known, lesser played composers and pieces, um, very wide, diverse repertoire. And I asked him if he had any advice about playing, about career, whatever. And he was kind of like, honestly, I can't give any advice because I feel I kind of did everything wrong. I didn't really win a major competition. I whatever. And still somehow people want to listen to me play. So I kind of got lucky. I mean, he was very nice about it, but he really felt he couldn't give a lot of advice. And I think I'm a little bit the same. I don't know how to answer any career-based questions per se, but I can speak to the musical aspect a little bit and give my opinion on that. So musically speaking, if somebody's a pianist and they feel that they just have to do, they love piano and they have to play, one of the things I would say is be curious about the wonderfully broad, diverse, extremely deep and extremely historically long tradition of uh, European keyboard music or the, you know, your traditional, uh, sorry, composed music in the European tradition, let's say. So not only what we call classical music, but keyboard music that comes from before, for example. I mean, all the wonderful, wonderful harpsichord and fortepiano music, some of which is played on the piano, like famous Bach pieces, 
some of which is never that almost never played on the piano composers like Froberger and William Byrd and Couperin, who only a few, very few pianists play. Um, some of that stuff is absolutely wonderful. In addition, from all the famous, famous A-list canonical composers, Chopin and Beethoven and so on, most of them have tons of other interesting pieces which are almost never played. And it's refreshing to dive into them because it reminds us of the, the scope of their creativity. It gives us a kind of window into their time. And um, it just holistically, if I can use that word, kind of increases our love of and appreciation of and awareness of um, this wonderful tradition of music that we're taking part in. And of course, I would also say, um, you know, most of the people nowadays that grow up playing classical music, I probably 99% of them don't only listen only to classical music. Most of them are also listening to pop music or rock music or jazz or whatever they like in their spare time. And so we already have a diverse sense of aesthetics and a diverse sense of sound. And um, I do notice sometimes young musicians get a bit defensive and a bit, they're a bit, um, they don't know what, quite what to make of all this modern stuff that happened since the early 20th century. And um, one of the wonderful things about contemporary music and part of the reason that I write it and that I play so much of it is that we live in the most aesthetically diverse artistic time probably ever. And um, nowadays, if you feel that you don't like um, music that's incredibly wildly avant-garde, that's fine. There are thousands of very capable, nice composers working in, in styles that are more easy to listen to and they reference music of the past and so on. On the other hand, if you're the kind of person who likes something which is a bit more off the wall and zany and kind of extreme or, or whatever, there's a long history of avant-garde music and experimental music and partially and totally improvised music that can be really exciting when it's done very well. And so um, I would just say, you know, be curious, seek out all the wonderful gems of music that are hidden that most of our um, uh, classes and most of our teachers, unless we're very lucky, um, never introduced to us because Piano has by far the hugest repertoire of any Western classical instrument or, you know, the keyboard, we could say. Um, so explore it and dig deep and see what you find. There's going to be thousands of pieces that you never even considered that are going to tug on your heartstrings and ignite your imagination and so on. And the second thing I would say musically is I would really encourage young pianists to get in touch with older performing styles. And I don't only mean taking note of historically informed performance, which is of course wonderful and, and really inspiring when it's done well. But I also mean, listen to the way that pianists played before recordings and media kind of standardized in the early to mid 20th century, before they kind of standardized the way we think about playing Chopin, for example. If you go back and listen to recordings that were made in the beginning of the recording age, all the, I mean, very early 20th century, all those pianists cut their teeth and trained in the romantic uh, era and in the ro with a romantic kind of approach to playing. Um, now, when I was young, I heard a lot of talk, uh, probably still people talk the same today about not wanting to romanticize Bach, not wanting to romanticize Haydn. Well, there's something to be said for that, but playing expressively and playing with creativity 
and playing with freedom and playing with a certain sense of uniqueness, as long as you're not distorting the music too much, you know, distorting what it looks like the composer um, had in mind to some extent when they wrote the piece, um, that's basically at the heart of the whole tradition. You know, when we go to see a great actor act Shakespeare, we don't want to see he or she act it the way that it's been acted a thousand times before or else it's not interesting. You can simply watch a recording or you can rent a DVD or, well, no one does that anymore, but, um, you know, and, and you can just enjoy whoever, Sir Lawrence Olivier, and there's no need to, to watch anybody else. So the reason that we love the performing arts, the texted performing arts, like the theater, like classical music, is because these wonderful pieces that were made by incredibly talented, skilled individuals um, can lend themselves to just tons and tons and tons of new nuances and interpretations and so on. And so um, don't let yourself be become dogmatic. Don't let yourself be straitjacketed by um, a famous performer or perhaps by a little bit overly conservative teacher. Um, you know, everything has to be done in good taste, but um, you really have to find the way that you can sing through the piece and the way that that piece resonates with you in a way that, <clears throat> pardon me, due to your own uniqueness as a person, it doesn't resonate with anybody else in that exact way. So I think if you reference and, and get, get acquainted with some of these performers of the past, first of all, you'll be surprised at how incredibly new they can make this music sound that you think you really know. You know, if you really listen to Chopin's first ballade played by a series of pianists in the 1920s or something, you might be really surprised at how you never thought the piece could be played that way. And it might also surprise you how much you like it, perhaps even better than um, some of the most well-known people that are playing today. So I think that will really help inject a lot of inspiration and life and a sense of freedom and possibility into all the hours we have to spend in the practice room to be a pianist. Thank you so much. Um, I think that was really helpful uh, and insightful. So thank you for that. Um, my pleasure. Thank you so much for, for playing some of my playing as well. <laughs> of course, yeah. We can end... Uh, this episode with um, your performance, it's also excerpts uh, of uh, March of Trolls by Edward Greek. And thank you so much for being here and uh, sharing your insight and thoughts about music and performance. Thank you again. It's been my pleasure.
support us by donating, you can go to our website www.contemporaryartmusicproject.org and simply click the donate button. Help us continue our podcast, festival, and other exciting projects. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time with more piano music. <laughs>